0: Screenpad Geek Show Podcast Network. We are the Geek Show Podcast that covers movies either starring by or about pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graeme Williamson. I'm a filmmaker, I'm a film critic for The Geek Show, and I also write for Horrified, the British Horror website. This week I've been joined by
1: Hello, it's, uh, I'm Sarah hayton I'm a writer and sometime director, and I also write reviews for the Peak Show Podcast uh, Network uh, website. And uh, that's probably it. That's
0: probably it. You, you, you're working hard on the writing and directing stuff. You don't have to feel, you know, guilt over <laughs> not having three jobs. That's fine.
1: <laughs> Although a job did come in today and somebody wants me to act in something. I'm just like, oh, my goodness, I have not done that for a while. Oh, that's as well. very
0: cool. Mm. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Exciting. Yes. Mm. This week,
0: listeners, we'd like you to take you back to a time that now feels very, very distant. A time when the phrase... Let's go and see that new Madonna movie was something you might say to a friend rather than a bitter enemy who you wanted to suffer. But there was once a time when this was true. It was just off the back of her second album, Like a Virgin, featuring the song Like a Virgin. And it is Desperately Seeking Susan, the second feature film by Susan Sadelman. It was a massive hit, the fifth biggest film at the American box office in 1985. Uh, And still I, I would say pretty well loved today wouldn't you
1: yeah i noticed it's got um sort of four and a half stars in uh the, in the place that came up on where did we watch it prime I think we watched it mm. um and you can understand why it's like a nicely structured uh, interesting um still relevant film i think yeah um, Yeah. And uh, and yeah, is in it. Not being very, not being too too Madge-y. Um She was <laughs> sort of, uh, yeah. It was it was really great to revisit it because I remember at the time I really liked it, um, yeah, and uh, I still do.
0: So when you say at the time, when will you have seen this first? Probably
1: time? back in the eighties.
0: Right. Okay. <laughs> um.
1: Uh. So that would have been sort of when I was at college um and it was 85 yeah sort of sixth form and college time i would guess um i can't remember seeing it but i know that we've had sleepovers and watched this with my chums at sixth form and when we weren't watching greece
0: (laughs) yes of
1: course on some vhs classic
0: (laughs) So that that presumably that will not have been when it came out, right? So that'll have been a fair bit later than that. It
1: was a bit later, yeah, because obviously it was out in eighty five. So um, it was uh, just a, a small amount of time later than that. But I'm not going into further detail. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> what I what I'm thinking is that this is remarkably the first time I've watched this, and uh-huh. from my perspective, it is so like intensely early Madonna it bottles the appeal she had around the very early years of her career so precisely that I am fascinated to hear what this would look like against a backdrop of say like a prayer or true blue or you know some of the late 80s early 90s stage
1: yeah and so it, it sort of stands up really well uh, amongst that sort of bracket. Mm. Um, I think later when she went full sort of sex bomb, uh, it, it, you know that was obviously a, a, a different phase that she was going through. Mm. Um, I think you know she was going through this. The great thing about it is that it's just everybody said at the time as well, oh, she's playing herself. Mm. And like in subsequent years, they've they've sort of said the same thing Um, because with Madonna, she can't play anything other than that. She's um, she's very much Madonna in everything she does. Um, And this part is perfect for her. It's just, you know, at that stage, she was still like a New York based singer, dancer turned singer. Yeah. Um, And um, she has that sort of uh, just just adventure she was adventure and she arrived in new york and she you know uh, susan at one point susan looks out was it susan no it wasn't susan it's what's her name roberta, roberta. The uh, roberta character. Uh, looks up yeah she looks hmm. out the window and she's sort of gazing wistfully out the window and somewhere in the background there's the Brooklyn Bridge and then the next shot is this big bus arriving and who should step off the bus but Madonna and it's yeah. like adventure coming from afar to join Roberta in the city and um and it's perfect there was this great line actually Susan comes back to see her her friend who he works in I think it's a magic club and she's a cigarette girl yeah and um the cigarette girl says Susan we all thought you were dead and she says no I was just in New Jersey (laughs) yes
0: that is great yeah she's a
1: cracking line we'll talk
0: about that magic club a bit later because there is a surprising amount to unpack there but yes
1: yeah 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 Yeah. what a surprise that was yeah but there was I mean it's not the only (laughs) surprise but
0: the thing that I was thinking of when I was thinking of like Madonna's early appeal is, mm. I mean, I'm not in the target market for Madonna fashion tips. It would be fair to say. But mm. correct me if I'm wrong. The idea of very early holiday and Madonna is, it, it's glamorous but it's also homemade. It's saying, look, here is a major international sex symbol and she's wearing stuff that you can well believe she found at like a thrift store.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and in fact, that's what happens in part of the film. She goes into a secondhand clothing store. She tries to negotiate her jacket for the boots. Mm. Um, she at the one point she's sort of walking off subtly with the boots and, and trying to not trying to steal them, um, because she's like yeah. rebel and she makes her own rules and uh, and with perfect uh, lipstick the whole time. Um, <laughs> and there was this idea that she could just sort of you know she's putting it together when she's in the toilets you know she's lots of pulling some random thing out of her bag and just going oh yeah I'll put that on um Mm. and that that was kind of very much her look it looked like um she was she wasn't afraid to wear her underwear on the outside and that makes her sound like Superman but no (laughs) um it's um she would wear she was cross dressing as well if you think about it because she was wearing the shorts and the shirt of her lover yeah. um and she just went out in that um but yeah so she she actually you feel like she's just sort of fallen out of bed and she's got a vest on and she's got these sort of uh, fishnet stockings with the garter belt on top a suspender belt on top and um she puts on the guy's shirt and that's his shirt and shorts that she's mm. wearing and she that she puts the shirt on, and that's how she distinguishes between lying around in bed clothes and going out clothes. Yeah. So that's what she wears. Um, and the, I, the fact the fact was nobody dressed like that at the time. I mean, I wasn't living in New York, I was living in Northeast England. So certainly nobody where I lived was wearing anything remotely like that until Madonna was everywhere, and then everybody was wearing <laughs> the fishnet gloves and the crucifixes and all the. Yes. Yeah, so she was there was this idea of she would invent herself as she went along. And that was an inspiring idea. I think prior to that, um, in pop, it I don't know, um, it, that it's was sort of the a realm very of
0: constructed kind of glamour, right? It's about an untainable yeah, kind of glamour. And
1: I think you have to have quite a forceful, forceful personality to push that through because hmm. I mean other pop stars at the the time, I guess. Debbie McGee, Debbie, not, not Debbie
0: McGee, <laughs> not. I really. You know, I'd, I'd love to hear your Debbie <laughs> McGee sing Rapture. I think it would be great. It would be
1: awesome. Yeah. yeah, Blondie, obviously, she's quite a strong personality as well, and they they put together their own looks, and that was very much like a New York feel. That yeah. what that's what came out of the city, and in. In uh, London, I suppose, and possibly Birmingham, we had a, a thing happening in the 80s as well, but it was mainly focused on the, on the male side of things. There's not a mm. massive amount going on on the female side of things. Um, you get people who are very similar looking to Madonna a, a, a sort of appearing, um, but certainly she was the standout person and was such an inspiration it was her attitude as well in the film, yeah. the fact that she, you know, she, you get the impression that she just kept everything she owned in that case, and it was a cool case, and she had a cool jacket, and yeah. she sort of looked at these like knockoff, not knock, not knock, not, Nefertiti, actual Nefertiti earrings, yeah. and she'd be just like, yeah, I'll stick one in one ear, and then I don't know the other one in my pocket. Um, and that's
0: that's the thing that gets the plot going, isn't it? Because the man yeah. who she's lifting the clothes and jewellery of is a guy called Mika.
1: Mob.
0: Yeah, presumably he's named that. That's a hint. He's named after Ralph Mika, the nineteen forties and fifties cinema bad guy.
1: Oh, uh, really? Oh, yeah. nice one. So it's not Mika, the singer of Grace Kelly.
0: Not that one. No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, he's no also nothing.
0: played. He's also played in another pop star cameo, and I love it when we start watching a film for a particular pop star. Even we get a load of other pop star cameos in it. But that's Richard Hell, the legendary uh, proto-punk NY singer. Was he the, her
1: original boyfriend?
0: No. Ooh, uh, no. He. He's. He's the guy in the bed at the start. He's the mobster at the start. Oh, is
1: he? Yeah. I didn't even see his face.
0: Well, yeah, it's not very... He was so
1: anonymous. He was yeah. delightfully anonymous. The, the way that normally women are discarded in that fashion, and that's mm. a complete reversal of the norm, where you, you hardly get to see their face, you certainly don't know what their name is, apart from, you know, in passing, sort of, you know, half an hour later or something. Um, so I didn't realise that was him.
0: No, I think oh. he's only there because he was in Susan Sadelman's first film, Smithereens, in a more uh, substantial oh. role.
1: Now then, was Smithereens released, re-released a couple of years ago?
0: It was, was that... yeah. It was on Criterion a yeah. couple of years ago. And, and I... it's not the
1: punk scene in New York, is that yeah. right? Yep,
0: yeah, that's right. Remember, yes. We yes. did it on Eclectica one week, didn't we?
1: You, we did, yes. Yeah. Indeed.
0: That's really interesting to think back to that film now that I've actually seen Desperately Seeking Susan, because the, the main character of Smithereens is almost like a A critique of the later film before it happened it's like saying all right here's what someone like Susan would be like in real life you know he's someone living a very precarious existence who's always in very serious trouble and now she does it again uh with the second film being a more kind of light comic register
1: yeah and we we never really find out what she does I mean she's sort Mm. of sort of affiliated with a band and she's friends with somebody in a magic club but what does she actually do is she just a drifter is she a grifter she's certainly um quite happy to be you know commit a crime if she needs to if she feels like she has to because obviously she has zero cash she has no home she's you know poor and homeless
0: Mm, we don't Um, even find out her surname there's a bit towards the end of the film where we see Her and Roberta named in a newspaper article and Roberta has a full name written out and then it's just, and Susan.
1: Uh, Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. well spotted.
0: (laughs) But I think that is part of why this role works for Madonna in ways that um, her later roles didn't because even in her singing career, Madonna's main suit is not likeability. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't mean that in a harsh way. I think you can actually have a really good pop career and not no, be yeah. particularly likeable. Her yeah. s- suit was always attitude, you know, rather yeah. than likability. Yeah,
1: if you weren't likeable, go to Dor- D- Dorothy Gibson. What the hell? <laughs> Debbie Gibson. Who's Dorothy Gibson? What's going on with her? Really I fine. think she
0: was she was in Blondie around the same time as Debbie McGee. Um <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is a girl group forming before our eyes yeah.
0: <laughs> But yeah it, it's true so you know that's not a hindrance to her in pop but it was mm. a hindrance to her when she started playing lead roles in films and you have to do something to get the audience on side whereas mm. with Susan I mean she is likable she is charismatic she is interesting but The main character is Roberta and everything, almost everything, at least that we see of Susan is something we're seeing through Roberta's eyes. And so Mm. it it allows Madonna to play an object of fascination at Mm. the time when she was becoming an object of fascination for the entire Western world. Mm.
1: Definitely. There's always this idea that whatever your idea of Madonna is, it's correct. She's Mm. kind of malleable in that way because she reinvented herself constantly. And you were always sort of left thinking who is the real Madonna, which is kind of a a more mainstream structuring device. I don't know whether anybody, I mean, who sort of stays the same person all the time, but she just sort of um, was able to monetize that.
0: Yeah, um, I think one thing that's it's sort of passed away from pop music discourse now but this idea that if you change genre loss there should be a real you that is underpinning everything else and that we can say Mm -hmm. you know I remember that it's just the ink that was spilled trying to work out if Beck meant it or not in the 90s was really weird to me it's like what what why do you want Devil's Haircut to be a tender confessional from the bottom of a man's soul? How would that improve the song? I don't
1: know. I don't know. Uh, his, I remember getting that album and just thinking, this is excellent. I have yes. not heard anything like this before in my life.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I adore Beck. But uh, yeah. that another topic for another pop screen, maybe. Sure,
1: yeah. sure. Madonna's um,
0: Reinvention... Was always very theatrical. And I don't think, you know, again, she got a lot of that who is the real Madonna. And as you say, I think it's it's bizarrely beside the point. I think when you maybe there is an element to early Madonna where that's the real Madonna, where, you know, the headstrong woman who hustles away into pop stardom, that is actually who she is. But by the time you get up to something like erotica, don't think it's the point of the
1: music at all no no i think they're sort of quite disparate at that point and it's almost like kind of a cynical 90s vibe about it and which fits in with the period completely um but when here we're back in the 80s and there's lots of 80s symbols that you know crop up in this film authentically that would be sort of rammed into a a vintage, no, not a vintage, a sort of a period film set in the 80s, like the Flock of Seagulls haircut. Yes, yeah. Um, Which is obviously always going to be the the, the bit up here and the bit down here. And uh, everybody at that club who, you know, seemed to have been imported in from Camden, (laughs) um, but also, you know, this was New York at the period, so I guess, you know, that exactly that person would be... Uh, like a blend of there was some punky characters there were also some new romantic characters and there was some obviously trans, uh, trans transvestite characters I would say not transgender but transvestite hmm. um, before transgender was more a thing
0: yeah um, and I think that bleeds through to the film's soundtrack as well because one thing that really bothers me in films yeah. that uh that are set in a previous time period is that everyone no matter who they are or what type of character they are is always listening to that week's top 10 whereas you've got this kind of blended 80s in Desperately Seeking Susan yes there is some 80s music there's some Madonna music of mm. course but People mm. are also still listening to Iggy Pop and the Marvelettes and Aretha Franklin as well.
1: And Aretha Franklin, yeah. Um, what was it at the beginning? Uh, Is it thing? Betty Everett. Oh, no, yeah. it was um, respect. R.S.P.C.A. It was
0: respect. You're right. Yeah.
1: Um, but the Betty Everett was more, wasn't it? More associated with like how things used to be, and then it sort of gradually gets more modern and more empowered music as it goes along with, uh, lust for life and, you know, people who are striking much more personality driven, uh, singers, yeah. I would say. Um, but what was I going to say? Oh yeah. The, the, that is true. If you make a film that's set in the eighties, you've got to have the pastel colors mm. and the, somebody has to be sort of a sort of fake Madonna and, uh, and there'll be somebody like I'm thinking of the wedding singer, which is Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. Yeah, and I and I love that film, even though it's Adam Sandler, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's uh, it's not you know um, uncut gems. Um, it, it's it's still good, um, and loads of people are in it. Like John Lovitz is in it, and uh, uh, Steve Buscemi's in it randomly. Oh, made um, wow. Well yeah
0: if you've steered us onto the topic of unexpected celebrity appearances
1: well funny i should mention that yeah yeah, yeah.
0: Head, head because the uh, the mc at that magic club we mentioned it's john bloody taturo
1: john tuturo literally the very man yeah, the jesus <laughs> the jesus yes
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah amazing there's a few ones like that i think the um I think i've I've assigned he's him only
1: right... for like he's only done for like uh, you know a few seconds at a time, really, yeah, but even that even in that he has this nuanced layered performance. I you really can agree. see
0: why Spike Lee would see this or some other bit past he'd done and think, yeah, that's the guy I want for do the right thing,
1: yeah, cool
0: <laughs> but there's another one there's earlier on, I think the um there's a scene where I think Roberta is at... It's a party. No, no, it's not the party uh-huh. one. It's the street vendor. Uh, the street vendor where Roberta wrecks his stall.
1: With the hat and the, yeah, the glasses.
0: Giancarlo Esposito.
1: Is it? Yeah. Right. Because in that that's Where's that sequence? Oh, I think the sequence I was thinking of was the, the party and its roberta and she's so bland and everybody the the shot opens on this horrible nighty like dress And it's just basically, it's a wrap over dress, but it's like a sleeping bag or something. And everybody's in pastel. And this is obviously the latest thing in um, sort of the higher, uh, the richer belt of New York. Mm. And everybody's wearing these awful things. And it's like an old folks home kind of outfits (laughs) that everybody's wearing, but this is a bland party. And I think it's based, I don't know what, oh, is it, it's Roberta's birthday, isn't it? It is, is it Gary's birthday? And um she's uh what was I gonna say uh,
0: Star Cameos. Oh
1: yeah, Star Cameo. Um so but also Gary makes it about him, Kelsey mm. Prise, um, by saying, oh yes, I've got this advert on the on the uh yeah. telly. And he sort of goes into his telly. But the guy he's talking to is none other than comedian Stephen Wright, he of the <laughs> One liners ah. So um, I used to love him. He used to, you know, be regularly a guest show on, a guest star on uh, like t- chat shows in the 80s. So he would sometimes be on Wogan or sometimes he'd maybe feature on Kelly Monteith or something. Um, and yeah, that was a surprise. And he's very much every inch that persona in mm. the film. So I was just like, oh my God, that's him. <laughs> I mean, even the guy who and I don't even know this guy's name, but the guy who is the henchman of mm. the mob boss, um, he, he's, he plays that role in so many things. He always is like edgy, psychopath, crazy blonde guy.
0: Yeah, who is that guy? I don't know who um, that is. I don't think it is Will Patton. No, no, I can't remember no. who it is.
1: And another celebrity cameo, live and direct pre-Roseanne, Laurie Metcalf. Oh, of course. Pre Ladybird, way before Ladybird. Yes. And playing that excellent character. She, yeah. she does, you know, bringing, eking out all the comedy out of her character because that's who she is. She's a great actor.
0: Absolutely. Um, yeah. There's one other small appearance I want to talk about just because it's the most AC's New York thing I can think of. Uh, but There's a scene where Roberta has gone back to Susan's apartment and. There's like this saxophonist in the flat opposite.
1: Yes, that I would laugh out loud at that bit. Do you know who that is, mind?
0: That's John Lurie, the uh, jazz it? musician and Jim Jarmush regular. Yeah.
1: Oh my goodness. What it immediately reminded me of, and I was just. Barely laughing out loud. I thought it was the SNL sketch, Sergio, come to life, <laughs> which is, it's so hilarious, that sketch. I love it. I had to show soon afterwards and it was uh, this, uh, uh, the idea is um, the chap's walking down the street and he accidentally snaps a sacred ar- artifact that a beggar man is um, using and he puts a curse on him and he's just like, oh, that's weird. I'm getting on with my life as a busy businessman in, in the 80s. And uh, then suddenly things would go wrong, and Sergio would appear. And Sergio is John Ham dressed up in kind of like a wife beater vest and playing an extreme raw eighties saxophone, <laughs> just leaping out of walls and appearing. So yes, that's that's what that totally reminded me
0: of. It, but
1: you know, niche.
0: <laughs> it's one of those things that new york in the 80s just had isn't it that every absolutely bad apartment on a stairway was just yeah. issued with its own saxophonist
1: yeah on the fire escape probably yes. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah or behind a blind somewhere <laughs> <Butlet> blind.
0: <laughs> it's a good new york film i normally have this problem yeah. with new york films where i, I feel like any culture about los angeles is always about how terrible los angeles is <laughs> Uh, which perversely (laughs) makes me like LA quite a lot. Uh, Whereas every bit of culture about New York is about how great New York is. And the more people insist on it, the less I am convinced by that. Like I got through about two episodes of that Pretended it's a city thing on Netflix before thinking oh god just shut up about New York just for a second
1: <laughs> I guess that makes kind of sense in the context of New York as a city it's the destination for people fleeing lots of bad things so they hmm. had to kind of pretty much engage with uh the east coast city in like a, almost like a savior like feel of um, of freedom from tyranny or wherever the poverty, wherever they'd come from. Whereas LA's never had that, obviously, opposite coast. um, People sort of amble over there sometimes. LA, the the best summary of
0: LA in popular culture is Robert Downey Jr.'s line in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang where he says that LA is what happens if you just tipped America up at the East Coast and shook it and all the normal people managed to hold on and all the freaks just fell to the end.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's an unusual place. It doesn't have that hard edge that New York has. It, mm. New York always has this edge of having to be tough and carapaced against danger. But again, if you are in a new place, you know, eight million people. Yeah. However, many of them are immigrants. However, many of them are saxophonists. There. So many saxophonists, and you've got to sort of put walls up against that yeah. saxophone hell.
0: <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Roberta ends up in Susan's apartment because of a plot element that I think is is maybe the divisive thing about this because she's been following Susan around for a while. Mm. She's been watching her. She found out about her through, and, you know, if this doesn't date the film, nothing does, not even the Flock of Seagulls thing. (laughs) Uh, She was fascinated by a personal ad that Susan had put in the local paper And she goes to find who this extraordinary Susan, who's leaving so many ads, might be. Mm. And she ends up banging her head and being mistaken for Susan, including by some very shady characters. And because, Mm. of course, this is a movie, one bang of the head causes immediate amnesia. Uh, So she does come to believe she's Susan.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It struck me as having, it reminded me a bit of the funnier moments in Mulholland Drive where you're watching someone try and work out who they are and how ridiculous that is. I mean, there's a line where, let me just see if I can find the line, yeah, where someone asks Roberta, what, did you rob a bank? And she goes, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, yeah.
1: there is some great lines in it uh who wrote it leora barish wrote
0: it oh man i didn't know who that was so i looked up her credits and
1: tell me tell
0: me well i mean you're used to thinking of screenwriters people who maybe don't have full control over what they do so their cvs do sometimes end up looking a bit crazy but uh Leora Barish is the only person in the world who can claim to have both worked for Chantal Ackerman and written the sequel to Basic Instinct. Really? That's a high-low combo, right?
1: Yeah, that's amazing. What's that called? Mediocre Instinct. (laughs)
0: <laughs> the Ackerman film was golden 80s Which I think was one of the slightly more mainstream things That Ackerman was, was doing around that time Like Couch in New York But yeah, oh. Basic Instinct 2, Risk Addiction What a bizarre film that is Oh um, dear i did watch it once on a bad movie yes. evening with friends and it's uh-huh. you know how every time a character in a film is introduced uh, as a novelist you know that the prose that they actually come out with is going to be the worst shit that you've ever heard in your life <laughs> yeah. basic instinct two is like the gold standard of that oh uh, like my god. every single one of sharon stone's novels would have el james sat there thinking oh god tone it down a bit <laughs>
1: here there are some choice lines like yeah. I, uh, I like that one where's the other one oh you know when gary and madonna are getting stoned in his mm. house in his yeah. fancy 80s house and he's just like oh you know how at at times like like all time comes from a single point in the universe yeah. and madge is like nah <laughs> it's, just, it's just this lovely moment It's just like, no, I'm not going to get sucked into Whatever that nonsense is Like, I'm Madonna, no, I'm going and, my own way And <laughs> that
0: is what Susan is to this film She is an old-fashioned trickster figure Who punctures mm. the pretensions of everyone around her yeah. I think, I mean, there are some people Who are kind of bothered by the amnesia thing And they think it's hawky To me, it mm. is no more relevant to the whole thing than a Midsummer Night's Dream is about Mm. love potion it's just this slightly magic realist device to get everyone's lives in a mess so that that can be overturned once we've had our fun
1: sure definitely I love little concepts like that conceits Mm -hmm. like that and I don't I don't think there's a problem with that I think it's cute yeah absolutely um, I mean not not every film is gonna do that and I think there's still room for it yeah I think um, it, if if the film was
0: not... operating in a strictly realist register I'd be bothered by it but i I found it actually w- was quite hard to confuse with an episode of homicide life on the streets you know I, I thought it was actually doing something a bit different to that
1: yeah. Yeah, and it's not, yeah, of course, it's not that. And it's it's still got, it's not the only old-fashioned element. Um, Mm. There's a couple of really nice transition shots that are straight from, I don't know, I feel like it's 1940s or something. So um, she sort of is shaking her feet at the moment, I think to dry nail varnish, and that Mm. moves on, transitions into a drum roll, where a guy's playing drums in the Magic Club. And then another one, um, a spinning newspaper. Yeah excellent which um um transitions into well a drum roll again i mean admittedly they are drum roll focused but um, but still really enjoyable to sort of go oh that's cute well,
0: they that they use that band in the Magic Club as an actual organic part of the score, and there mm. is a moment quite late on where there's a chase in the Magic Club, and <laughs> the the band actually start playing a faster version of their normal <laughs> song, which I think is brilliant.
1: That's nice. That's like when there's whenever in a film there's. Something bad that happens, like somebody's screaming, or there's a gunshot, or there's something, you know, mm. people are upset. Immediately, they're just like, strike out the band, make the band play, make everybody feel yes. better and forget, you know, that there's just been a homicide on the dance floor.
0: I think I worked out what sort of film this is as soon as Susan picks up those earrings and Sadelman puts a little like optically inserted pre-CGI sparkle on them that looks Mm. fake as hell but that's not the point it's a little (laughs) bit of magic a little cartoonish element in what starts off as as quite a realistic portrait of 80s New York
1: and I think that keyed
0: me in straight away to how to enjoy this film
1: Mm. I mean, looking at it from sort of looking back on it from now, as your first time watching it, how did it sort of? How what's the feeling that it left you with overall?
0: I think it has a kind of giddiness that is really infectious, and it's strange because I mean, it's best positioned as a comedy, and it does have some terrific lines, but. I didn't find it primarily funny so much as I found it primarily fun. You know, mm. I was enjoying watching all these characters get into adventures and it didn't actually bother me if it didn't end up in a sort of comedy set piece or a comedy line. I was just swept along by the adventure of it.
1: Mm. Yeah, I agree. It's it's light frothy stuff there's no sort of deep and meaningfuls unless you choose to look too closely at the background and you know <laughs> <Ariane>. <laughs> you're saying
0: you're <laughs> saying that uh, it would be a bad idea to look deeper into it but have you heard Sadelman say what the inspiration for this film was no, no. only Celine and Julie go boating by Jacques Rivette
1: good god good lord <laughs> wow, well, fair enough, I've not seen that but I'm guessing that's a French auteur movie, is it?
0: Yeah, Rivette was one of the French new <laughs> wave and he, he was noted <laughs> for making movies that just went on forever but in a good way mostly. Yeah, um,
1: maybe she just sort of was inspired by a part of that. and you know, Well, no, I,
0: I've seen Celine Julie. Most... I, I love Celine Julie, by the way and I, I actually think I can see the influence on this because Celine Julie Gorbosing was made... Uh, in collaboration with its lead actresses Juliet Berto and I think it's Delphine Seyrig in the other role and mm-hmm. they were encouraged to try and spin a, a sort of fantasy to play these characters who were pushed together. They ended up in each other's worlds in, I only note this, in a magic club where one of them works. <sighs> And they sort of cross between different worlds and different genres as a result. They end up in a kind of a period piece at one point that's like a spoof Henry James thing. And obviously Desperately Seeking Susan is less like deliberately unrealistic than that. But Mm. there's a similar idea to it that yeah yeah, Rosanna Arquette starts off in a drama about yuppies and Madonna starts off in well she basically starts off in Susan Sadelman's previous film Smithereens (laughs) but through getting these earrings uh, which are very similar to the magic sweets in Celine and Julie Mm. um, they are allowed access to different genres and different styles and different kinds Mm. of movie in a way
1: that's the transformation. This would be that would be, I guess, like the French Nouvelle Vague version of Mr. Ben.
0: Yes, absolutely. I've I've never realized the inheritance that Celine and Julie gore has from Mr. Ben, but I think it's absolutely there.
1: <laughs> Miss Ben. <laughs> um, the speaking of candy, um, one of the most unusual lines is when the weird sort of freaky blonde guy henchman guy says uh, "Uh, do you like candy because I've got some in my pocket like who are you talking to a seven year old (laughs) it's not like what you didn't bring any puppies with you this is a fully grown married woman Yes, he's like very out of touch with what women want I think it's not (laughs) bookmarks and trumpets all the time
0: (laughs) it it does sound like he's workshopping livics for dear Jesse doesn't it when he does (laughs) that
1: yeah yeah <laughs> but I did really like all the authentic colors and, and not just pastels of the sort of middle-class world but the neons yeah. of the city and the harsh lighting but I loved this drenched scene of the red light or drenched in green I thought that was fabulous mm. I love that yeah. anyway I'm a big fan so I, I get saturation <laughs>
0: Absolutely, yeah. I think it's a gorgeous looking film. It is shot. Um, it
1: is.
0: Ed Lackman. Uh, Ed Lackman, who we have dealt with on pop screen before uh, he was the cinematographer for Talking, uh, for True Stories, the uh, David Byrne movie.
1: Right. But oh, what a career.
0: Sense. What a career he's had, though. He started off as Herzog's regular cameraman in the Good 70s. God. And he somehow lived through that, um, so he How ended up
1: months <laughs> <Once> maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I can't remember whether I mentioned this in the True Stories podcast, but there's this amazing Herzog shot called "Soup for where he goes to a volcanic island just as it's about to erupt. Um, and he says something like, We had to go down the mountain as Ed was feeling nauseous from the fumes, <laughs> and you can just hear the contempt in Herzog's voice at this lightweight who passes out <sighs> at a bit of volcanic gas. Honestly,
1: <laughs> I, I live for these times when you do a Herzog impression, <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: You know what he did recently, though, Ed Lackman? Another major film that he shot uh, within the last decade.
1: Oh, Neon Demon?
0: Not the Neon Demon. He no. shot Carol.
1: Did he? Yes. Oh, yeah, that it has its own interesting palette, doesn't it? Absolutely, oh, nice. yeah. I don't, I'm, I'm struggling to age him. I guess he'd be in his uh, 60s, 70s by now, maybe? It's a good point, yeah. How
0: old is Ed Lackman? Let me see. Um, hmm. He was... Oh, wow, yeah, he's a real veteran. He's 73.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. Cool.
0: But, yeah, what a CV. Um, We should mention Roseanne Arquette, because I feel like I know she was kind of disappointed that the film was marketed as a Madonna vehicle. And I I think with with some reason, because she is the lead of the movie.
1: That is true, but if you notice, she doesn't have as strong a contract as Madonna, because who gets their boobs out?
0: <laughs> yes, very true. Yeah. I'd totally forgotten the
1: boobs! Yeah. Totally forgot boobs.
0: You so, say yeah. that, but would Madonna necessarily have a no see clause in her contract? Like,
1: I think she would at that stage, yeah. Maybe at that it stage, It really yeah. start happening until later, and yeah. Uh, Yeah, and she taught, she sang about being a virgin, but she, you know, she didn't really do much. She did bits and bobs of underwear, like wearing the basques and everything, but Mm. that was as far as it went at the time. Yeah, fair Um, point. So, yeah. So maybe she did have a stronger lawyer, or she is a stronger personality, I feel, than Arquette, I would guess.
0: I would say so yeah I mean this must be pretty early in Rosanna Arquette's career because she was still getting a lot of ingenue roles at the time and I suppose probably part of why this appealed to her was because she's playing a housewife which is and a housewife who is the lead of the story as well rather than just playing a hero's girlfriend it is both more mature and a bigger part.
1: It is She, she has some growing to do and maturing and it is kind of a a nice woman centric movie um mm. but and the surrounding characters are the males who sort of put the women into various scrapes um like you know the the magician even the magician you know you have to wear this wig and you have to wear this costume and it's the same with rosanna arquette's character you have to in order to be this person you have to wear this awful (laughs) these (laughs) awful pastel frocks and that that's her freedom when she gets to wear this incredibly cool jacket with a, a triangle a pyramid on the back that madonna wears Um, that's it's you know her transition
0: yeah I mean one of the few false notes for me in the movie is that they are very angry at Roberta when she messes up the magic act and I I thought thought I'd go and see that (laughs) magic act that actually looks better and more entertaining than doing it right yeah it's the Tommy Cooper factor
1: (laughs) yeah exactly that's what you do it's and I think later on that kind of idea got more developed in some magic acts where the magic mm. just goes wrong and in fact right now um, and I can't remember where it is, is it Netflix has something on that is that exact trope right. um, and it's the goes wrong group of people you know oh, the play that yeah. went wrong, the play that goes wrong um, and um, only this time it's focused in, in magic I believe, um, right. I can't remember exactly where it is, it could be Prime I'm not sure. Um, oh, another thing to say is this film, um, talking about music, um, is three years after um, the uh, song by, what do you call it, Toto? And it was alleged to have been about Rosanna Arquette. Really? Yeah, Rosanna. Wow. Mm-hmm.
0: That's extraordinary. the The main person I associate with being romantically fixated on Roseanne Arquette is James Spader in David Cronenberg's Crash. So I'm pleased to have that more wholesome version (laughs) in my head. Yeah, I I think she's very good here. I think there probably isn't really a false note in the cast, is there? I think it's a very strong cast.
1: Hmm. Um, even like you know, Gary is a is a great little character, um, with his hot tub empire, and that sort of <laughs> reminded me of the one the hot tub empire run by, um, uh, Rye. What's Rye? Rye's name in um.
0: V. Winston.
1: No, right? No, that was supposed to be Australian. I did not. Oh, right. Off. Okay. Um, um. Oh, what was he called? And it was in Strictly Ballroom. Strictly oh, Ballroom. right right um and he's drunk and he runs a sparama rice and that's what <laughs> it reminded me of like adverts from that as well I like it when you get these sort of local adverts in American movies yeah. there's, there's it's quite a thing it crops up you know fairly regularly isn't it, it like it's
0: that. one of those things isn't it where it doesn't happen in this country but you are so totally familiar with it as a phenomenon <laughs> from American media from watching the Mr Plough episode of the Simpsons or something <laughs> like that yeah
1: yeah made in America with mm. um Ted Danson has right. as well where he's a car salesman doing his usual shtick uh
0: but yeah I think it, Rosanna Arquette is good, but I feel like we will have to talk quite a bit about Madonna, uh, where she was at here and why. I don't, Would it be fair to say it never really hit as well for her, acting-wise again after this, or am I l- overlooking something?
1: No, I, I know that she got sort of... She wanted plots for Evita, mm. um, and people were a bit like, well, I don't know whether she's really hit many notes with Evita. Um, and when you um, see videos like... <laughs> You mentioned it before, actually, a little like a prayer Yeah. Um, when she's uh, ostensibly playing a role in that of a woman. And and then she's telling people like, Jesus, I let him out. (laughs) Um, And you're just like, yeah, you haven't changed, even though this is not a speaking role for you. It's a video. (laughs) And it's just like, yeah, no, just, you know, it's great when you're playing yourself. But beyond that, maybe don't.
0: I am indebted in my research here to Todd in the Shadows, a major inspiration for pop screen in general, but his video series, Cinema Donna, where he watched every single Madonna movie. Um, (laughs) Wow. I mean, someone's got to. Uh, But it's it's the only chance you'll get to see some of the real obscurities. And I think what Mm -hmm. I noticed... Is that she's never vulnerable on screen? Like even if that like blue is the f- uh, blue in the face, where she has a one scene cameo as a singing telegram, she mm. is really hard faced and standoffish in this. And yeah, you know, in when that you're playing someone film, like
1: she's a fencing instructor.
0: Oh man, die another day. Mm. Oh man. Oh man. I don't mm. think I can analyze it better than that. Die Another Day is such an oh man film. <laughs> <laughs> it's not good. I have a friend who listened to almost no pop music, and he could not recognise Madonna. But he just said, "Look, I, I was I was aware that someone had come on screen, and they could not act."
1: Yes, yeah, I think that's a fair assumption. <laughs> it's. It, I don't know whether it's. I mean, it's partly that I really genuinely don't believe their talent is acting um but I think it's also partly having it's a very weird thing when you know somebody in a different context and then they do something else and it's just Hmm. like oh that really jars with me like Rupert Everett having that pop career like Stefan Dennis having that pop career (laughs) from (laughs) Neighbours (laughs) yeah Um, it's just weird some some people can do it better than others i think and i honestly i I, this has been kind of a bit controversial when i've when i've said that david barry as well
0: oh man
1: i know i can't get with it
0: yeah Mm. i can sort of see it i know that there is a point where he comes on screen in the last temptation of christ and pontius pilate and your first reaction is just what what the hell why is David Bowie Pontius Pilate what's He's right going in on
1: Zoolander, Zoolander
0: he, in fantastic yeah mm. I think Bowie has enough acting talent to get you through those moments but I think mm. one of the other things with Bowie is that as his career went on he started to do more cameos and side roles and I think
1: it's probably a better option
0: better option also probably practical in that it's yeah, hard to hit film shoots around a world tour um, mm-hmm. but Madonna hit this level of mega stardom straight away where mm-hmm. it meant she couldn't be in the quirky side roles where she didn't have to you know go through a great emotional journey or show some deep wound in her soul she could just be fun and that I think desperately seeking Susan proves is what she's good at
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Trouble and Fun. Mm. Um, and when you get a film like W.E. Was that a early, late 90s, early 2000s? It was
0: later than that. It was, it was early 2010s when was she it? did W.E. That's that a gruelling I... film, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it really is. It's hard to sit through, and not because, you know, there's scenes of genocide, although, you know, <laughs> You do pray for something. Um, but uh, you are watching and you, you're you desperate for something to happen and it's just a vacuum when she's on the screen. It's not great to watch at all. The sets are gorgeous. Mm. End of list.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the sets are gorgeous. Uh, Oscar Isaac is gorgeous, lone man, in, in terms of actors who really can pick him, there's one, isn't there, that, like, he's... <laughs> He had great luck. He had a great breakthrough with Drive. He had a great stroke of luck getting into the new Star Wars. Most of the rest of his career suggests that his agent is actually insane.
1: Uh, what is? What
0: else is he in? He put, what was that thing that he was in a while back where it was one of those multi stranded dramas, which is always a bad start, I think? Uh, yeah. Something like Life Itself and the the like killer line of it was life itself is the real unreliable narrator and you think what's that mean sit down and explain uh, yes. to me what what you meant when you wrote that <laughs> go on, explain to me how life is an unreliable narrator i challenge you i challenge <laughs> you to do it
1: <laughs> hmm.
0: Yeah, there's there's some fun stuff here. Yeah. you know, ex Machin is good. Uh, Inside, Lewin Davis is good. But
1: oh, as oh, I found it. I found one sucker oh. punch. <gasps> Holy Jesus.
0: When you just started intoning all deeply, I thought you were paying homage to Adam Driver's cameo in Inside Living Davis, but yes, <laughs> sucker punch fucking
1: hell. I know, I know. He's been in loads of films I've not even barely noticed him before.
0: I think he's he's one of those actors who is, I mean, for all I've ragged on his choices, he's incredibly versatile. It's very easy to watch him in about seven different things without realising that it's the same guy. Um, yeah.
1: He did five films in 2018.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure he's one, two, good in all of them, but how many of them are good themselves?
1: Five in 2019 as well. He's a busy guy. He is a busy
0: guy, yeah. One, two, three,
1: four, five in 2014. One, two, three, one, two, three, four. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a lot of films each year. Yeah. So, yeah, three or four films each year on mm. average. Maybe he just has that kind of face where it's not, it's not massively striking and he can fit into many roles. Well, I think
0: one, one thing that I always notice it happening with is generally actors of a sort of Hispanic or Latin or Spanish uh, background because there is still this thing in Hollywood where they get cast as like the broadest possible variety of ethnicities. I mean, yeah. Alfred Molina was the first person I noticed this with. It's very hard to recognize Alfred Molina film by film because in some of them he is white, in some of them he is Middle Eastern, in some of them he's South American, you know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And who's the other guy? Who's the guy on Saturday Night Live who has that, Faculty as well. He can be Middle Eastern, Spanish. He was in the Sergio videos as the shaman guy.
0: I mean, you'd called? hope it would be most of them on Saturday Night Live who had that kind of yeah, versatility, right. but no, it isn't. You're, <laughs> you're quite right. Oh no,
1: okay. No, who was it? Who was it? Who was, it? Who was it? Oh, oh, my memory's shocking today. I do apologize, but yes. Anyway. Mm. <laughs> But yeah,
0: um, music-wise, we have Hmm. to mention that this has one of Madonna's all-time bangers on the soundtrack.
1: Yeah, Into the Groove. groove. That hits us at one hour in. I mean, it keeps you waiting, but it's worth it. It is. It is. It's surprising that it's timed exactly in that way.
0: I think Into the Groove, I might be sort of getting this wrong because I I was too young to properly remember this at the time, but it does seem like looking back on people's reactions to Madonna, that in the very early stages, all of the kind of snobbier end of the critical faculty were like, oh, she's just a pop star. And it was around the time of Into the Groove that people thought, well, say what you want, but this is this is pretty good. I might, it's a great
1: tune.
0: I might just be thinking that because Into the Groove is, as far as I'm aware, the only Madonna song to have been successfully covered by Sonic Youth.
1: Uh, as far as I'm aware, it is.
0: Good it's. cover version, though. Very good.
1: <laughs> I haven't heard the cover version.
0: Surprisingly good. But yeah, the, the song is great. <laughs> her, her whole 80s was just strength strength wasn't it you know absolutely culminating hot, in like hot, a virgin absolutely yeah. great i've uh, got like a prayer sorry absolutely mm. gold and stuff yeah. how do you feel about 90s madonna
1: um well uh, it was very it just seemed so like corporate and polished and marketed to the nth degree and she even produced the book the sex book um, One of the
0: maddest things a celebrity has ever done isn't yeah, it I mean
1: that's, that's a crazy idea but she's Madonna she's just incredibly hardworking she's uh, headstrong um very um, on target very hard work you know she just never stops she's always reinventing she's always trying new stuff I love that fact about her actually she mm. just, isn't afraid, I mean, she was a children's author at one point. Do you remember that phase?
0: Oh, God, I, I hadn't thought about that for years, that but I was do the remember 90s. that. Happening.
1: Was it? Yes. Oh, I right. Okay. So. Yes, I think Lourdes was only little.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Um, I like 90s Madonna very much. I think now that the sort of wreckage of the sex book and all of the like attendant controversies around the time, like, um, Her her going on David Letterman and being as pervy and inappropriate on stage as David Letterman <laughs> is generally is backstage, uh, which was a big scandal at the time um, Now that all that's cleared up I think the 90s have quite a lot of her best songs, I think it's amazing that at the time mm. she was being dismissed as just this controversy addict who just made shock music, she was actually putting out stuff like Secret and Human Nature, which are yeah. glorious songs
1: Yeah, Human Nature is excellent yeah, mm. I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that since that time. She's just like this factory of amazing like tunes that keep coming out. Yeah, and so different from each other. Like you were saying, dear Jessie, that's not like anything else. Not at all, no. And the Breathless album that was unusual.
0: It was that had songs by Stephen Sondheim, didn't it? Which you know, oh, let's great. see <laughs> Debbie Gibson say that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was kind of cheeky. Um and yes, what was what was the film that it's from? Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy, that's yes. it. And she had to hang around with Bloody Warren too. I know
0: she seemed yeah. to enjoy it at the time, but yeah, really I also better. share your shudder. Uh,
1: yeah. If anybody else could be in a sequel of um <laughs> what's the one where she is an author and she there's an ice pick and oh, did she do it and didn't she?
0: Basic instinct.
1: Yes, thank you. You were talking about that earlier, were I was
0: you? talking about Basic Instinct 2 earlier, yes. yeah. That's
1: it. If anybody could appear in a V-neck pullover in Basic Instinct 2, it could be Warren Beatty and be similarly... <laughs>
0: oh. Yes. Yeah. I thought you were going to suggest Madonna for the sequel to Basic Instinct. By... We have <laughs> seen Madonna in an erotic thriller around that Absolutely. time, and it was not good. It was not good. <laughs> dripping candle wax on poor Willem oh, Dafoe's yeah, balls.
1: Oh, Willem Dafoe, I remember that. Poor guy.
0: greater indignity than Lars von Trier <laughs> has inflicted upon <laughs> Willem Dafoe.
1: Sad <laughs> <That> guy. Oh.
0: <laughs> he goes through how it for I his think-
1: yeah, exactly. Art. Oh, how <laughs> do they get away with it? Honestly, these guys are maniacs. Just put Lars von Trier and the German guy up a fucking volcano. Sorry, I just. <laughs> <laughs> excuse me. Um, yeah, and get them to like improvise some shit up there.
0: I would love to know which executive was sat there thinking, all oh, right, we've got we've got Madonna in our hot new erotic thriller. We just need a hunk of a leading man for her to get involved with. I know. I know. Really? <laughs> you sure? She's a
1: funny old stick. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I would watch it if it was Madonna having an affair with Willem Dafoe's character from The Lighthouse. I think that would be a good
1: movie. <laughs> Yeah, I still need to see that. I love the look of it.
0: I love that Willem Dafoe, you give him this part and any other actor would be like, okay, let's let's study an, a New York dialect from the early 1900s. What would this character sound like? And Willem Dafoe, serious actor Willem Dafoe, arguably I think the greatest living American actor, gets the script and says, oh, wow, a sea captain. Ha ha, me hearties. And he just spends the whole film doing that Simpsons voice and it's Glorious, it's Yar. the best thing <laughs>
1: <laughs> Oh in that case I'm definitely Watching you for the comedy <laughs> value <laughs> oh, I remember Who it was who can uh, go from, uh, you know, ethnic role to ethnic role, oh, various yeah, ethnic yeah. Role. Fred Armisen. Oh, Fred, Fred Armisen, Armisen of
0: SNL. course. There was a time when he was Saturday Night Live's go-to Barack Obama impersonator, and a lot of people were like, oh, is that yes. appropriate? But it's like, well, Fred Armisen has like about 3% of every single ethnicity in his family tree somewhere. So they kind Probably. of got away with it. But yeah, it, it was yeah. very odd. Yeah. <laughs> but yes i think when we're um when we're passing the family tree of former saturday night live stars that is probably a sign that that's it for this week isn't it right
1: <laughs> it's been an enjoyable jaunt we've had a, a few uh, meanderings here and I, there but it's always certainly fun have. yes <laughs>
0: absolutely yeah uh don't forget listeners if you subscribe to our patreon you can get a monthly bonus episode as well as lots of other goodies you can get our other movie podcast directors lottery and my doctor who reviews if that interests you but until next week with more pop screen that's been your lot i've been graham
1: and sarah
0: see you next week bye